0: Hey guys, thanks for joining us for this 152nd episode in Season 2 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. Special guests on this episode include comedian, social influencer, and author Charlie Behrens. We'll be talking about his new book, The Midwest Survival Guide. We'll also visit with director Robert Whitey about the new documentary, Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time. We'll also visit with UCLA pediatric surgeon and author of a new book for kids about health, Dr. Nino Shapiro. We'll talk about The Ultimate Kid's Guide to Being Super Healthy, which is available next week. And we'll also visit with John Teague of the Teague Brothers Band. They've got a new single, I Found Trouble. We'll also talk about his upcoming album. Of course, if you would, please take the time to subscribe, comment, leave some feedback, check out the shop and share it with your friends. Now, science has apparently determined that the ultimate all-around song is every breath you take by the police. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, it's complicated, but here's the cliff note version. Researchers at a university in Denmark set out to determine if there's a pattern to the music we listen to throughout the day. They broke the day into five blocks, morning, afternoon, evening, night, and late night. And they found that we do prefer different types of music at different times of day. But every breath you take has musical qualities that allow it to drift through all five blocks. Now, one of the researchers says, quote, it's a very in the middle type of song. It's medium tempo. It's a bit groovy, but not too much groovy. The Midwest Survival Guide is available now. We've got, uh, let me see, I wrote down notes here. We've got comedian Social influencer, viral sensation, and now author Charlie Barron's with us. And uh, Charlie, first off, I appreciate you taking some time to be on the show.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate talking to you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Now that the book is out there, what was release day? What was that like for you yesterday?
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. It was. Uh, I did some uh, interviews, and I was working actually on a, on another video. We do a lot of video stuff, so I was r- working on a script. So, uh, yeah, you know, it was it was nice though, pretty uh, pretty relaxing. Just a lot of talking about the book and a lot of writing. So, uh, I, I worked, you know, in the typical Midwest way. I blew right through it. I just worked. I guess that's your honest
0: answer, you know. <laughs> and the Midwest Survival Guide. Tell us, Charlie, where this came for you? Why why the book now? And and obviously, it kind of ties everything together.
1: Yeah, so um, I started off doing uh, the Man Minute, which was doing uh, local news, really hyper-local news about, you know, Wisconsin and the Midwest more generally in this very thick Midwest accent, you know. Um, and then those videos kind of took off, and over time, you know, we started doing sketches and other things. But I always had these fans uh, say, hey, I'm coming to the Midwest, to go to college uh do you have any tips or do you know what what i could do in this city or or that state uh or you know what are the states in the midwest that i gotta uh, visit just all these questions so really it came from fans kind of wanting this sort of a thing and so uh, eventually i just came up with a pretty simple title on it the midwest survival guide and, and started plugging away
0: The byline, how we talk, love, work, drink, and eat, everything with ranch, and and how true on that, Charlie.
1: I know. You know, everything is better with ranch. Ranch is kind of like deep frying it. You can't go wrong, you know, and I mean that for everything.
0: I know you talk about uh, the language that we speak, also the accents that we carry, and and what is it about the Midwest that loves to add extra syllables on, on short words as well?
1: I mean, that's kind of a cool section, too, because the Midwest, you know, it's a huge region. And uh, obviously it goes from, you know, it bleeds up north and butts up with Canada and then, of course, butts down with, you know, the south and all that sort of stuff. So the accents change. And uh, but a a big a big part one of the most cliche accents of the Midwest, uh, but very accurate accent is just, you know, kind of that basically talking, like, from the bottom of your jaw as if the only thing that's moving is the bottom of your jaw because it's so cold. It's like, oh, geez, Louise, you know, I, I, I tell you, I got to get out there and winterize that gas darn boat before it gets too cold again, you know. And so just kind of like, and then you, you use your nasal uh, area to kind of push those syllables through. And then, yeah, add a few other syllables just for fun.
0: You know? <laughs> and Charlie, as as you started sharing the humor, sharing the accents, obviously there are portrayals that that are alike. Folks that you're around. What was what was your immediate uh, circle? What was their reactions first off?
1: Oh, it it was it was a lot of fun. You know, I mean, when I first started doing the bit, uh, my my grandpa Bob was one of my main uh, influences on that, and I, I would straight up just copy some stuff that he said. And I wouldn't even add a punchline, and it would get laughs, you know. Uh, But when I uh, ended up, uh, you know, showing it to my family, and my family's in a lot of this. You know, a lot of these are stories from growing up as well. Uh, They they liked it all so far. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, I doubt any of them have read, uh, the whole thing yet. So except my mom, my mom read the whole thing. She's okay with it, except for a few sections, but she got over it.
0: Now, Charlie, uh, aside from everything else we mentioned also, well, y- you obviously are Midwestern cause you got bluegrass in your blood as well. Where did, where'd the music inspiration come from for you?
1: Yeah, you know, I've always been in uh in the music when I was in high school. I was in a really bad Grateful Dead cover band. Uh so yeah, we had some good years in there. I won't say it was all bad. But uh, you know, I've always been into playing guitar and mandolin, um, harmonica, piano a little bit, and then I connected with my buddy Adam gruel from Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, the, uh local band and uh and, well they're they're uh, nationally touring band but uh, we started in Wisconsin and we just decided to do this album of Midwest songs uh, and uh, you know that we released last year and it was that was a lot of fun and when I do live shows he still uh, he comes out with me to some of them and we do some music in the shows
0: that is good. And again, the Midwest Survival Guide, it is available now. Charlie, I want to make sure and let our listeners know where's the best place to find more, not only about the book, but uh, upcoming tour dates and everything else you've got going on as well.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, you, well, you can, you can go to Uh I picked the easiest one to spell, obviously. Or what's easier is you can just go to Uh C H A R L I E B E R E N S uh Uh, dot com uh, or just Google the Midwest Survival Guide things have come up with the Google machine too.
0: That's right and again the Midwest Survival Guide, get your copy now Charlie, great to visit with you sir, I hope you have a great rest of your week and look forward to catching up again.
1: Hey, great talking to you thank you for having me on
0: Netflix has released a list of its most popular TV shows and movies of all time by the amount of hours they were viewed. They separated them by English language and non-English, but for this we will consolidate the results into one list. It's just easier that way. Now The top shows, number one, Squid Game, with 1.6 billion hours watched. Number two, Bridgerton, with 625 million. Number 3, Money Heist Part 4, 619 million. Number 4, Stranger Things 3, 582 million. Number 5, The Witcher, 541 million. Number 6, 13 Reasons Why Season 2, 496 million. Number 7, 13 Reasons Why Season 1, 476 million. And rounding out the top 10 were Made, You Season 3, and You Season 2. Now for movies, none of the non-English ones were able to crack the top 10. They looked like Bird Box at number one, followed by Extraction, The Irishman, The Kissing Booth 2, Six Underground, Spencer Confidential, Enola Holmes, Army of the Dead, The Old Guard, and Murder Mystery. And in related news, Netflix announced that they'll release weekly list ranking shows and movies by their total hours viewed on top10netflix.com. Got a new book, or actually a uh, documentary to talk about, about the author, Kurt Vonnegut, called Unstuck in Time. That's going to be available this Friday. And uh, we've got Robert Whitey with us today. And first off, Robert, it's a privilege to have the chance to visit with you, sir.
2: Oh, well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. Or, or we'll see how we'll see we'll reconnect afterwards. We'll see how it went.
0: We'll see if it was pleasurable afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> now,
2: I Rob, imagine it will be.
0: This documentary for you has been a, a long process. And tell our listeners how the the idea first came and, and what the fascination with Vonnegut's work is for you.
2: Well, I was very young when I first approached him. I was 22 years old. I had just finished uh, my first film, which was a documentary on the Marx Brothers, which I made because I was a big fan of theirs. And uh, I was a big fan of Vonnegut's. I discovered him in high school. It was, the first book was Breakfast of Champions, which was suggested to me by an English teacher. And I read it and fell in love with his work. I said, well, this is my author. You know, I had to read everything he had written. I became somewhat obsessed And um, so now going a few years ahead out of high school, I'd finished my Marx Brothers film, wrote him a letter, proposed doing a film on him. He wrote back to me and said that was fine. He had seen the Marx Brothers film, as it turned out, and liked it a lot. He's a fan of old comedy, as am I. And um, so, uh, you know, the idea was just that it would be a fairly straightforward, conventional author documentary, the type of thing you might see on PBS, on American Masters. But it turned into something very different because over the next 25 years, uh, we had a very, um, you know, really great friendship, a very close friendship. And it became clear that for full disclosure for the documentary, um, I couldn't duck around that. I'd have to sort of reveal the fact that I'd become very good friends with my subject. So that, in fact, became part of the film.
0: What's it like, Robert, to have the relationship with one of your idols to, and, and to have an enduring work like this? Uh, the, the process that took, what, uh, 19 years, I think, that you actually recorded with him as well?
2: Yeah, well, I started, uh, I was absent from school the day we learned math, so I can never really do the numbers quickly in my head, but uh, I I started, I approached him in 82, we started filming in 88, he died in 2007, I know that was 14 years ago, and here we are now, so it's 39 years from the time I wrote him the letter, and um, it's a great relief to have the film done, uh, because I really, there are long periods of time where I really questioned whether this thing would ever get finished, and as far as the friendship, it was a remarkable thing. And yes, we, we, I think we all have that fantasy about somebody in the public eye, possibly whose work we admire, be it a writer or a a musician or an actor, uh, whatever playwright who, whose work we admire. And we sort of think, Oh, it'd be great to meet them. Maybe we'd be friends and maybe, you know, we'd hang out and enjoy each other's company, but it really never happens. It's kind of a delusional fantasy. But in my case, it not only happened, but it became one of the most enduring, uh, closest relationships, you know, friendships of, of my life. So it was it was quite satisfying.
0: How much different is the lens going back and editing, getting this ready for release? How much I- different is it for you on this project as opposed to others because of that personal tie that you had to, to Kurt as well?
2: Well, the... <laughs> Uh, There's a a couple of different questions in there, but I I would say that, uh, you know, the length of time, I've actually taken my time with a few projects. I did a documentary on Lenny Bruce that took me 13 years to make. My joke at the time was I didn't know whether to have the film released or bar mitzvahed. Um, (laughs) uh, And then I wrote a screenplay for Jeff Bridges in, in 1996 that got made in, I think, 2000. Thirteen, so um, I, 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 but 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 this one takes the cake at, at, at thirty nine years, um, but um, I've now talked myself out of remembering what your question was. But
0: uh. <laughs> how, how much different is the lens looking edit edit wise because of that relationship you had?
2: Because of the relationship, well, that's what was certainly unique about this, and it you know it it made it a different film, uh, you know. Again, it was it was after he died that it was suggested I take this route. And I was very reluctant to do it because I really had no interest in being on camera. I'm not somebody who, you know, needs people looking at my <laughs> mug on the screen. But it, it really clearly became the only way out of this hole. i had sort of dug myself with sort of full disclosure and talking about the friendship. And, you know, as it winds up, I think the film is, you know, uh, to the extent that I can be objective, much more satisfying, much more interesting, much more unique with this element in the film than it would have been had it was if it had just been a kind of a standard as I say pBS documentary
0: And, and Robert, what is your expected takeaway from the viewers this weekend?
2: Well, uh we'll see my my feeling is that I, I hope there's something in it for the Vonnegut fans, and many of them have been waiting for this film for a long time. I've been waiting 39 years, almost seven years ago, that a lot of people donated to who are saying, are you really making this film? So (laughs) there are a lot of Vonnegut fans waiting for the film. So I hope it's satisfying to both the fans who know his work, who say, yeah, this was the tribute he deserved. And for the uninitiated uninitiated who might see this film, not know Vonnegut's work, but after seeing it say, well, this guy looks really interesting. I'm going to have to pick up Cat's Cradle or Slaughterhouse-Five or, uh, you know, any one of his books. That would be satisfying, too, if uh, if it appealed to both the fans and the uh, and the newcomers. That would be great.
0: That's right. And again, the the new documentary, Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time, available this Friday. And Robert, always want to make sure and let folks know if they want to find more about the about the documentary or any of your other works. Where's the best place for folks to keep up, sir?
2: Well, I have a website. Uh, my company is Wyaduck Productions. So the website is duckprods.com. A lot of information there on all of my work. But there's also a Facebook page for the Vonnegut film. If you go on Facebook and just put Kurt Vonnegut documentary or Kurt Vonnegut Unstuck in Time, you'll get all the updates on what's going on with the film. And as we you know, uh, move into other areas of home video later, that's, that's a good place to get information on the film itself.
0: All right. Well, again, Robert Whitey, it has been a privilege to visit with you, sir. Looking forward to the documentary and hope you have a good rest of your week, sir.
2: Thanks, Cameron. Same to you.
0: We might see a new record this year for the most Thanksgivings ever. More people feel okay getting together, but still don't want to be around huge groups. So smaller Thanksgivings are a thing again and means a record number of Americans plan to host. 47% of Americans say they'll host a Thanksgiving dinner this year, up from 41% a year ago. That's compared to 33% in 2019 before the pandemic hit. Now, when you include everything from food to decorations, the average host expects to spend a total of $391.60. That's down 18% from 2020 when everyone splurged, but still higher than the pre-pandemic average of around $320. Making it a potluck can bring the cost down. More than half of people who plan to host expect guests to help cover at least some of the expense this year. Only a third of Thanksgiving hosts said that in 2019. The average person is expecting 10 guests and will spend over nine and a half hours prepping. That includes cooking and getting everything else ready. And 54% of hosts are very or somewhat stressed out about it. 46% said not stressed at all. Got an upcoming book to talk about. It's called, I got to take a deep breath, Ultimate Kid's Guide to Being Super Healthy. What you need to know about nutrition, exercise, sleep, hygiene, stress, screen time, and more. And we've got Dr. Nina Shapiro with us today. And first off, Dr. Nina, great to visit with you. Nice to meet you.
3: Nice to meet you, too. Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, you've written a a, a bunch of books. Where did this uh, kid's guide to being super healthy? When did you start on this one? Has this been a, a labor of love for a while, I guess?
3: It absolutely has. So it's interesting because you said you needed to take a deep breath. And that was my (laughs) the title of my first book was Take a Deep Breath. (laughs) So thank you for for sharing that too. And um, this book, which is written for children, um, obviously adults can read it with a child, which is highly encouraged, um, but it's written with a voice towards elementary school age children. And one of the, you know, I work with children every day in my, job, and I am fascinated and impressed every day how inquisitive kids are, how interested they are in learning real science, real information, and, and how that's kind of missed. It's kind of glossed over in the younger ages because kids are often told what to do, um, and they know they have to do it, and they have some idea that it's because it's good for them or you know, they need to sleep because that's what you know they need to get a good night's sleep, because maybe they'll feel crummy the next day if they don't get a good night's sleep, but they don't really know the science of it and why that is. So for instance, if I'm in the office and I show a seven-year-old their x-ray, They think that is the coolest thing (laughs) and they really want to know what is all that stuff in there. And and I ask them, what do you think that is? What do you think that is? And they love to identify it and they love to know what everything does. So I think, you know, we, we as a society tend to give kids the short shrift. We just sort of say, you know, do what you're told and it's good for you. But I think, you know, my goal is to acknowledge that they have great questions and then to empower them with answers and then also to give them the tools to ask more questions.
0: And it's easier to write to the kids than than it is to, to share a story through parents and hope that they give that information to the kids, right?
3: Right, right. Because I think we can use language that's not, you know, talking down to them, but is, you know, accessible to them. And, um, and maybe also, you know, we'll give some new information to adults as well. I think a lot of new information to adults.
0: Now, what is maybe one of the misconceptions about kids health and, and maybe some of the things that are, that have to be tackled in the book early on?
3: So I think, you know, I start with nutrition and that's a real, that's a real challenge because, you know, I don't like to, you know, use the words good and bad when we're talking about food and how kids eat and what their choices are. Um, So I think, you know, people get really, and it's, it's uncomfortable to talk about. And I think it's become more uncomfortable, especially after, you know, during this pandemic, when, when a lot of health practices really went out the window and people weren't healthy and eating what we would consider healthy food. Foods and taking good care of themselves. So um, I really think that nutrition in children is a delicate area. And um, again, I don't like to talk about good or bad. I just talk about, um, here's what this type of food does f- for you and to you. Here's how this, this is why this type of food makes you feel a certain way. And here are things that help you grow. And then here's what happens with your digestion. I mean, we know you know, you have the feeling of being full and we know the feeling of being hungry and we know the feeling of what food tastes good. Uh, But what happens after that? There's so much more that I think young kids can understand and then think about food differently and hopefully in a more positive way um, where they can make decisions and really understand uh, what they're doing.
0: Talking about health with kiddos as well, I mean, you probably don't have to deal with some of the health issues that that you have to deal with people with a little bit more age to them as well. So able to keep it a a, a little simpler, if you will.
3: Yes, I mean we're not talking about chronic hypertension and chronic heart disease. You know, certainly are children with with these rare disorders, um, but this is to sort of begin health practices early. So hopefully they won't have a lot of the chronic illnesses that we're seeing in you know older children and even young adults. Um, and so I try I try to just talk about like here's your body, here are all the great things that your body can do, and here are all the things in your world that your body can work with and that, you know, the world can sort of work with your body as opposed to, you know, this is healthy, this is unhealthy, this is good, this is bad. Um, here's all this great stuff that maybe you didn't know.
0: And and it's always easier to, to give examples rather than just saying, just don't do it. Right, right, yeah,
3: yeah. And, and some of the stuff that we say, you know, don't do it. You know, for instance, the first chapter is why can't we have cookies for dinner? I mean, I, there are actually not so many good reasons why I like <laughs> um, No, 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 but you know, then talk about like, okay, well let's break it down. What's in a cookie? And frankly, most you know certainly if it's a homemade cookie, there's really not that much bad stuff in a cookie or unhealthful stuff in Mm -hmm. a cookie. Um, But you know, just sort of let's think about what else is important uh, for us. And and I think you know I think kids will enjoy it. I hopefully parents will enjoy it as well. Um, I try to keep it light. Um, I do give a lot of examples. I give a couple of you know for each chapter. There's a little to do uh, activity. Some of them are a little messy. Fair warning for parents. (laughs) Do it in the kitchen or in the, or in the bathroom is a little bit of mess of messy stuff in the hygiene chapter. Um, But, you know, I want to make it fun. I want to make kids interested in it. I want them to, you know, and I also wanted to generate more questions and, and make them really really think about it.
0: So how was your writing process having to write to a different language, a a different, uh, a different audience? I mean, how much did you have, how much of a challenge was it for you to make this more accessible, if you will?
3: So it it was a bit of a challenge because I want it to speak to a, a range of ages. So you know, as young as five or six, all the way up to eleven or twelve. So that's a big range. But a lot of books are written. You know, certainly we talk about chapter books that you know maybe written for a fourth or fifth grader, but a kinder or first grader can read it. Um, I speak to children all day, so I really enjoy it. And again, I you know I see zero to twenty one year olds every day, and most of the kids are elementary school or younger. So. So I am familiar with the language that they're uncomfortable with, the language that they're comfortable with. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. But you know, again, a lot of my writing before that, or all of my writing, was to adults, whether it was to parents or colleagues. Um, I speak to adults, I speak to parents, but I'm really looking forward to now. Hopefully, if we can start to do some things in person, to to do some you know speeches and events with children. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Hopefully, once we can do that safely. <laughs>
0: And after everything we've gone through these last couple of years, how much have you noticed the need for mental health, especially of the youngsters? Because, I mean, we've we've all lived life and gone through some stuff, but I mean, this is something we've never seen before.
3: Yeah. And for kids, especially, you know, and everyone says, well, this age was really hard. You know, it was hard to be a preschooler, hard to be a college freshman. It was hard to be anybody during this time. And <laughs> right. Kids really suffered, you know, whatever sort of transition in school that they were going through or, you know, even preschool ages, they suffered ways that we don't even know yet. And I think, you know, especially because kids don't necessarily have the language to even understand what that suffering was, um, I do talk about that in the book. You know, again, in a lighter way, I use the word stress and anxious and nervous. I think um, that's pretty accessible to most school age mm-hmm. kids. They know the feeling about being nervous, definitely. They know the feeling of disappointment and anger and frustration. So I sort of bring those words in and I also acknowledge that these are all normal healthy ways to feel they should not feel that they are a bad person or it's a bad feeling or a bad emotion Um, but they just you know I try to give them some tools on what to do how to when they have those feelings how to deal with it, how to express it appropriately, what's not appropriate. It's not appropriate to hit your friend or your sibling if you're feeling frustrated. Um, But it's it's appropriate to feel frustrated in different situations. And, you know, so I give them some tools on what to do if it's happening at the moment and also some tools on how to sort of, you know, stress maintenance that we all need to do and we don't do enough of it.
0: (laughs) And how much can the stuff that is in the book be applied to each and every life to make them be super healthy? I mean, how attainable is that as well for the readers?
3: So I think it is all attainable. And another thing that I say is that nobody is perfect. And so this is not a book where here's the, here's the formula, here's the cookbook recipe to have you know the healthiest lifestyle when you're seven years old. It's by far not possible, <laughs> and I don't recommend even trying that. But I do cover really the air, all of the areas that are in a child's day, so including sleep, screen time, uh, you know, exercise, learning all the things that a child does. And, you know, just to take little bits of that and incorporate that into any child's life, I think, is very doable. But again, understanding—and I say this several times—is don't expect to do this perfectly. You know, there is no person in this world who you know has the perfect lifestyle. There's no best exercise. There's no best sleep pattern, best lifestyle, etc. Um, but just you know, here are some tools that you can use yourself. And, uh, you know, and I think kids will get a little more sense of independence and, you know, better relationship with their fam- with their parents um, and the grownups that they're they're around. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's really to empower them as well.
0: And what is it like after I know you have your copy of this as well? What's it like to see the finished copy and then to receive the feedback that you've received from from others that have had an advanced opportunity to read?
3: Oh, it's so, I mean, it's, you know, I hate to put it in this. It's like having a child, <laughs> it's like birthing a child. It's not, but it is in some ways. It tends to be usually a three-year uh, gestation or pregnancy, um, but, it, you know, holding the book, it's a beautiful book. It's, um, it's done um, really, really with love. I have an amazing illustrator. Her name is Nicole Grimes, and she's also an animator. And you can tell that by the illustrations that it's almost, you know, the, these illustrations come to life. Life. They're funny. Um, they're very inclusive, and and the book is beautiful. It has you know sort of a rainbow side to it, and each you know each chapter has sort of a different color scheme. So it's very physically very pretty. Um, I think kids will like to look at it. Um, so that's been great, and the feedback has been really great as well because I think people say, ah, you know, the finally something where you know you can you can. Connect with a child in a fun way that's not just sort of you know okay here's the information, um, but you know it's also pretty comprehensive you know so it's not just a book about you know nutrition or exercise or you know your bones or your muscles it it really is just sort of like this is what's what a child is living through every day. And, you know, just to give them a little bit, you know, in each in each section. Hand-washing is a big one in the, you know, we have a whole, there's a whole chapter on hygiene, um, which, you know, was sort of rolled their eyes on until all of a sudden, <laughs> a year and a half ago, hand-washing became cool and soap became cool. And we kept talking about hand-washing for adults. We actually have to take a hand-washing class at the hospital now to make sure that we know how to wash our hands. So, you know, basic stuff like that has sort of come to the forefront of conversations.
0: Well, that's good stuff. And again, next Tuesday, the book is available for everyone. And Dr. Nina, I always want to make sure and let folks know where they can find uh, more about the book, where they can pre-order it, and also keep up with everything you've got going, website and social media as well.
3: Sure. So the book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all of the other uh, large stores such as Target and Walmart. Um, I do encourage people, if they can have access to an independent bookstore, um, to use their independent bookstores because it will be available wherever fine books are sold. Um, Ask your bookstore or library to order it because I really want to support independent uh, companies as well. Uh, My website is drninashapiro.com, which is drninashapiro, one word, dot com. Uh, My handles on Twitter and Instagram are at drninashapiro, and uh, that's where you can find uh, what I'm doing.
0: You try to keep it pretty simple for us.
3: Yes, all the same, and for myself too.
0: That's right. Well, again, The Ultimate Kid's Guide to Being Super Healthy. Get your copy ordered, uh, have it in your hands next Tuesday. And Dr. Nina, thank you so much for your time. It's been a privilege to visit with you, and uh, hopefully we can catch up again real soon.
3: That would be great. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, here's something we've been doing wrong for our entire lives. You're probably using antiperspirant incorrectly. Now, you should really be putting it on at night, not in the morning, and here's why. First off, we're only talking about antiperspirant, not deodorant. Antiperspirant plugs your pores and prevents you from sweating. Most deodorants just mask the smell of B.O. So why at night? Well, it's because your body temperature drops while you're asleep, so you sweat less. And sweating too much can prevent it from doing its thing. Now basically putting it on at night gives your skin more time to absorb the active ingredient, usually aluminum. And most antiperspirants are designed to work for 24 to 48 hours, so it'll work fine the next day. Now, Showering won't wash it off, so you can still shower in the morning. And depending on how much you sweat, you might not even need to use it every day. Now, if you're a deodorant person, here's another tip. You shouldn't put it on right after you get out of the shower. Deodorant is meant to be used on skin that's totally dry, so it works better if you wait until your pits have aired out and there's no moisture at all. Always good to have our friends back on the show and putting a face with the name, as uh, as we said before we came on. John Teague of the Teague Brothers Band with us today, and John, good to visit with you, brother. Hey, what's up, Cameron? Thanks for having me, man. Always good to visit with you, and uh, I know we got a new single to talk about, got uh, some upcoming music, all kinds of stuff uh, going on. First off, let's talk about the I Found Trouble. Where where did this song come from for you, John? Man... Um, I, I...
4: I feel like uh, we we try to do a good job live of making people dance. And, and this is just one of those dance tunes. The lyrics, I mean, are really just about a guy who's falling heads over heels over, over this girl who is way out of his league, you know. And so, but he's going to make an effort, you know. And th- that's all we really can do. But she sticks around, you know. And that that's really all it's about. Um, and just – Making it fun and easy to dance to, and uh, the band really, you know, leaned into that. So the whole song is just super. Makes you want to move. You know,
0: how's the songwriting been for you as of late? How is uh, how is that now that now that getting out and playing has has that reinvigorated the songwriting process for you? Yeah, because the
4: songs I was <laughs> the songs I was writing during the pandemic were not as like
0: happy. <laughs> I can hardly now, imagine. It,
4: Right, Yeah, it was kind of I was getting down on myself and then I got COVID myself and that was rough and it whooped on me. And uh, but during my 12 days of having all this brain fog and all that, like on the way out of COVID, I just really just started hammering down. And uh, yeah, I've written another 10 songs besides the 10 we wrote last year and uh, a couple of the songs on the new record. Uh, our songs we wrote in actually like 2020 or uh, 2019, but uh, they're, they've kind of circled around. They've made their way to finally a record. It's kind of funny how, how long it takes from the time you write one to the, for the time for you guys actually get to hear it, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I am super invigorated. Hey, I, I've always been a nerd about songwriting and, and, uh, so I'm always writing. I mean, always, I was just writing before we got on the air. So.
0: Yeah. Now, what is it that inspires you? What is it that uh, in the day to day is it just uh, catching a word, a phrase? What is it that you're like? Ah, I gotta sit down.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's sometimes it's an interesting thing, or it could be a melody uh, that is like a lyrical melody. That like the the whole "I found trouble" thing was the skip, jump, and bounce off a of fumble. Like that just came to me one day, jacking around, and I was like, you know, that'd be kind of cool. And I just cataloged it, and then I came back and and put it to a whole chorus, and then a whole song. You know, so I kind of built it around that chorus. The whole song built around the chorus. So that that's kind of the way I do it. It's just it's it's yeah, like you said, it's like a, it's a molecule, and then it just turns into a living creature by the time the producer and the band's done with it. So yeah, it's 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 just. That's how I do it. It's just a spark, like you said. But I get a lot of sparks. <laughs> <laughs> Too many sparks, man.
0: So, so how many song ideas do you have currently stored on your phone? About uh,
4: 10 that were untouched. 20, uh, 20 total. 10 of those will be on another record. You know, we can kind of tell, like, that's a Teague brother song, and then it's like, <laughs> and then this is like John, you're being a nerd song, <laughs> you know. It's like <laughs> we kind of we have to balance it out, you know. The band helps check me. They're like, hey man, that's a little too nerdy, you know. Like you, someone, it's but that's okay. It, it, that's the fun part about it is that I'm doing this totally organically. There's no like me in a room and somebody's brainstorming and telling me exactly what to say or think and. Uh, and all the co-writes I've done, they are all very similar. The, the, the guys I've written with are like fun and want to do something weird or unique. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, honestly, I, I get that from like the John Fulbrights and and the Evan Felkers, the Hayes Carl, uh, Fred Eagle Smith. Those I, I love their approach you know, they're definitely just doing whatever they want. I promise. You.
0: <laughs> now, how has your songwriting process evolved? Where, did, where did this, the, the process start for you? And I guess you're a seasoned veteran now, but what, what are your goals long-term songwriting wise?
4: Um, you know, I don't know. I honestly, I, I try to, I do a lot of this songwriting cause it's fun and all that, but really I live for the live show. Um, so hopefully they all ultimately end up in some live setting and rocking the place. And that's, that's, that's where I'd like them all to be eventually, um, or on a really good record. Um, um, or, you know, or produced well, you know, that's kind of, I did a lot of like unproduced records before I really started making good records. And those are all, no one even knows or talks about that, (laughs) but, uh, you know, that's, I always hope that that's where they end up. Just they're presented well. My goal in songwriting, like long term, would be like, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Maybe make a lot of money. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
0: that's a good, that'd be a good start, right?
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and that would be cool. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, it's so hung up in me, dude. I mean, it's my whole life since I was a little kid writing short stories by hand on yellow tablature. Like, and then I, that went all the way up to me doing rap songs as a middle schooler. And then in high school, writing heavy metal and rock songs. And then I toured as a as a metal artist for a while. I was the lead singer in a metal band, it's crazy. But uh, before I joined the military and then, so I've just been songwriting my whole life, like literally all the way up until I heard Whiskey Myers and Turnpike Troubadours. That's whenever I was like, okay, country music, I can get into this. I was totally against it. Uh, I (laughs) I remember I told my wife whenever we first got married, I'm like, you'll never catch me in a pair of (laughs) Cowboys. This was before I went to Iraq and then in Iraq and then, you know, wanting to be home and like I connected with country music because it's more real. You know, it's like more tangible things that they sing about and not necessarily all these conceptual things that metal and rock music tends to sing about. So that's I just fell in love with that.
0: So the the Texas music scene kind of fits perfectly with a, a little bit of an edginess to it, a little bit of rockabilly in there as well. So how how do you meld the loves of music of your life into your sound?
4: man i like that dopamine hit really uh <laughs> i i chase that you know I, we we call it a vibe you know uh we chase it we, we pursue it actively as a band i do it as a lyricist already and i, I do a lot of the musical melody on my own so yeah I, I, that's really what I, my, uh my what i'm shooting for when I'm sitting down, you know, and, and like what I try to implement into every song is like, how do I turn that phrase that really just make, makes you mm-hmm. melt a little bit? And and makes sense, you know, phonetically, lyrically. Um, but man, my real life experiences are really just feed all of that. I, it, all the songs I write have some sort of like real life, you know, basis or feeling or emotion or, experience, you know, whatever I went through or somebody I know went through or. Sometimes it's a folk story, like a folk tale that we hear around like Southeast Texas. There's a lot of Southeast Texas in my <laughs> stuff, rice and cows and rainbow bridges and all kind of stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, who has been the biggest inspiration songwriting wise? Who has maybe helped you shape that songwriting ability? Um, Probably
4: number one. Number one and two it was my mom and dad. Both of them were really accomplished songwriters, and uh, my mom was a bluegrass singer-songwriter. So she's super talented. Uh, she play. She's one of those multi instrumentalists. Sings like an angel. Um, but back in the eighties, it was really hard for a woman to get break out in country. But, and she had two kids at home. So she went, came home from Nashville and raised us instead, which I'm thankful for. Appreciate that. <laughs> but so it's kind of embedded in me that way. But uh, my, my dad also is a honky tonk guy. So I have like this, like this, he was big on the live show and presentation and all that. So those two really kind of built me into who I am, like as, you know, made me want to do something that's tasteful and sounds good presented. But, uh, you know, beyond that, you know, I like Evan, Evan Felker and uh, like some of those uh, Robert Earl Keane, You know, those guys, I feel like I just I just pray one day I'm as good as them or, or they, they at least tip the hat to me one day. I don't know. You know, that's what you always as a songwriter. Those are the guys to me, you know.
0: We talked about uh, upcoming album. What's time frame on the release and how much, I think you said you still had almost an album worth of material still in the, in the coffers too.
4: I did. Uh, We, this, this record is done. We finished it in August. Um, So I found trouble is the first of that record and it's a 10 song full length album. That's going to take you on a roller coaster of, of sounds and, and uh and ideas and and stories i can't wait (laughs) man i'm totally totally excited about it uh as far as timing i think that it's going to be a slow release that's kind of the way things are these days like i want radio i want y'all to have it for a while and and uh have the time that y'all need with it and i learned to like you kind of plant the seed let it bloom a little bit and you bloom a little bit more I learned over the years you know releasing the last couple of, or the re- last record and a half you know what kind of works for us as a band how we release things and uh so yeah i would be looking at probably another single in march or something that maybe not as radio friendly because i do have a potty mouth sometimes
0: <laughs> say it ain't that so
4: one, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah so i uh, probably have around march have another one drop and then hopefully full album before the end of summer. You know, it's really hard to say because you got to build this, you got to build a team to release stuff. So it like, starts with the radio promotion, then you got a publicist, then you've got, you know, distribution and uh, management. I mean, there's just an agents and tour booking. There's just so much that goes into it before I can say, hey, Cameron, on this day, are you looking? <laughs> so, but I would say somewhere around summertime, that's what we're shooting for.
0: Yeah, how much has the mentality of the business changed for you? You talked about uh, you, you know you oh, always man. used to th- you always used to think about the album coming out, then you start getting singles off the album. But but now you're not the first time I've heard you, you know getting sell- singles, getting the stuff growing leading up to the release. How right. how has that changed from when you first began?
4: Because when you finished that first record, like when we finished Harvest Day, I was like let's get it out right now. I'm so excited. <laughs> you know, we have this whole thing and then everyone's like, tell me, pull the reins back, pull the reins back. Well, we didn't because we didn't have anything. So, and so from the beginning now, and you know, that, once I got that out of the way and got that off me and I realized like, Oh yeah, these people were pretty, they were actually right. Like I should have held up and shopped this to the right distribution company. And, you know, they were right about it, but at the same time, you know, as an artist, I just felt like we needed content. And so, so day one me, that's, that's what I was thinking. Now it's like, okay, we got plenty of content. Like let's give them this one and see how it does. Give them this one, let them, you know, just let it grow over time. Cause on top of that, we got music videos, we got shoot, you know, there's just so much, you really do need to have a full tank before you drop the whole thing. <laughs> you know, I kind of I kind of take the airplane approach where like the plane's got to be up in the air and be full of fuel before you can drop a bomb. You know, you, you can't just, you know, fly halfway and drop a bomb where you don't want it. You want to be in the right place when you drop it. So, and once it's dropped, it's gone. It's, <laughs> there's no getting it back. You can't put it back and say, oh, no, no, wait, you know. So that's why it's important. And I would encourage all artists to do the same, you know. Take your time. It's I know it's exciting. It's always going to be exciting. Even in 3 albums in you're going to be excited, but do it right, pace yourself and then it'll let the life of that album like for a lot longer. You know, we've gone almost 2 years of the full length record because we we started doing it the right way, you know.
0: And, so, and yeah. how, how hard is it to, to take those lumps and be like, okay, yeah, we learned we'll, we'll do it different next time around. Or are you hard headed enough like me that you're like, we're going to just keep on doing it the way I say, do it.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, even I found trouble, like we're kind of in talks with a management company out of Nashville and they were kind of like, hold up, hold up. Let me, let me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like this, uh, this is way overdue. Like you don't understand, like we're going into the new year and I need, so I want the radio to have something. It's what I've done for the last two years. I'm not going to change that because you're considering us. You know what I mean? It's like, I would rather be like, if if either if they would have signed us and been like, all right, we're going, we're we're pulling it. And they had a really good reason. I said, all right, but you know, since I'm still pretty much in control right now we're doing doing it my way. So (laughs) you guys got the song, you know, so that's kind of how it went with this one. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. I'm I'm just stubborn enough to, we're going to do it. Whatever we got (laughs) to do. Yeah.
0: Well, John, if folks want to find the, the new single, obviously, uh, they can call into country radio request that, uh, but also, uh, if they want to find uh, more info about the upcoming releases, tour dates, uh, social media, merchandise, all of that stuff. Where's, where's the best place for folks to keep up with the Teague brothers band.
4: Man, all our socials are, are pretty hot and I'm on them every day and jacking with people and everything, uh, <laughs> and posting pictures and stuff. So I try to stay on it. Uh, but our website's like kind of a hub where you can go everywhere. So, com, And then if you go to the tour, there's all our tour dates and tickets are always posted and all that. Um, and beyond that, um, like I said, the socials, Spotify is, I mean, we're all over Spotify. That seems to just be the hot hotbed now. I just, right. One just goes there. I mean, no disrespect to radio,
0: <laughs> just, I, I, no. I sense
4: that. <laughs> you guys oftentimes lead people to Spotify. Yeah. That's just kind of the way it works. But y'all also lead people to my show. So I need
0: y'all. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's right well uh, check him out online uh, p- find his music at whichever venue you p- participate in yourself and uh, again john it's been great to visit with you today brother yeah. i uh it- it's good to see you face to face today yeah thanks a lot <laughs> yeah i appreciate it thanks for having me man for sure well john always good to visit with you and uh, look forward to catching up again real soon for sure man stay in touch Well, thanks again for joining us for this 152nd episode in season two of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. If you ever have a comment, question, maybe anything else you'd like to know, you can hit me up on the contact page at GQWithCam.com. You can also find me on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at GQWithCam. If you'd like to help out in the funding for this podcast, you can visit our merch store where we've got hoodies, shirts, mugs, tumblers, stickers, backpacks, and more. That's gqwithcam.com forward slash shop. And if you have a special guest idea, email me gqwithcam at gmail.com. Well, thanks again to our good friend Brandon Allen for coming up with our theme music. We're going to let him play us out. Hope you guys have a great rest of your evening.